On September 11, 2001, the entire world was in shock and terror as the United States of America was under attack in New York City. Over 2,500 miles away in Yosemite, California, Larry McNabney was facing his own nightmare, coming in and out of consciousness in the backseat of a pickup truck. Five months later, a farmer would discover the body of Larry McNabney in a vineyard in San Joaquin County. What happened to Larry? Was this a crime of passion, or did the lawyer make enemies with a wrong criminal? I'm Kara. And I'm Caitlin. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. Just got back from Disneyland, so <laughs> I'm a little exhausted. How was it? It was really good. It was just a lot of walking, so our feet are definitely killing us today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll happen. How? Did you see Johnny Depp? No. I wish. I would have died. <laughs> I mean, we did see him once. Technically, we were just really far away. Technically, yes. We were in the same room, breathing the same air as him, so it counts. Yeah, I think it does count. I know I know he saw us. Oh, for sure. He was just like, yeah. there they are with their matching shirts. Yes. <laughs> um, what did you get for Christmas and your birthday? Uh, all kinds of good stuff. Um, Disneyland was my birthday trip, plus anything I bought was kind of like my birthday presents, which is really nice, um, mm-hmm. which, speaking of, I made my Lego Haunted Mansion yesterday. Oh my god, I love it! I was wondering what you were doing, but what I, you were building. But I added, because we have little figures of Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers, so I put them on here, and then that's oh actually Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> that is so perfect. What a diverse group of people you have there. I Yeah, listen, I'm a nerd. It's okay. Just living my best life over here. All together in one place. Yep. It's the dream team. <laughs> what did you get for Christmas? Um, I got this necklace from AJ. It's gold. Oh, cute. It's like a, yeah. Um, and, yeah. I think that's it. We, I mean, we really are trying to save money right now because we're going to Hawaii. So, I'm sure we're going to do lots of excursions there. Yeah, that'll be fun. Okay, well, do you want to just jump right into it? Yes. Okay. This is one case that I personally had not heard about before. However, upon conducting my research, I think it is a little bit more well-known than I was aware of. So, um, with that being said, also, I just want to say for our listeners, really, that while we're doing research, we're not just doing, we're not just using one source. And so, a lot of times when we're using multiple sources... They can kind of contradict each other, which makes doing the research kind of difficult. And we have to go in and decipher what happened when, what source is valid, what source isn't, and then put the timelines together. So there might be some contradictions in this case, just because of that reason. I did my best to make sure everything was valid and kind of perfect the timeline however just so I just want to make sure that that's 
known because there might there might be some people out there that are like, oh, that's not true. So anything that is in here is from a source. It's not. I'm not just making stuff <laughs> up. But so today we're going to be talking about Larry McNabney. Do you know this case? Never heard of it. Okay, so. Lawrence William McNabney was born on December 19th, 1948 to parents Jim and Marie and older brother James. So Larry's father had actually served in World War II and he received a Purple Heart for getting wounded in France. Just fun fact for you. Larry grew up in Reno, Nevada, graduated from Reno High School in the class of 1966, and he married his first wife, who was his High school sweetheart in 1967. They had a daughter named Kristen, but ultimately they would get divorced in 1970. Larry also received his bachelor degree from the University of, uh, of Nevada, Reno, so UNR, in 1970. And so 1970, this was kind of a big year for him and not necessarily in a good way. In September, Larry's brother James, James Jr., died at the young age of 23 years old. And one source says that he committed suicide. Another source said that he died at Stanford Hospital from a heart attack. So I did as much research as I could on that, and there really wasn't much out there. I mean, it could be something that was a suicide attempt, and then he ended up in the hospital. I'm not sure, but... Um, it did say that he died from a heart attack, so. Well, you so, said yeah. this took place in the 70s, right? Correct. So it, there probably isn't much recorded on it if it wasn't a murder or something, so. Exactly, and it's really in, in the 70s, all we have to go off of is newspaper articles, and that's what I was looking at, but again, it was, it was very vague. Okay. Just two months after the death of his brother James, Larry's father was found dead in his apartment from a self-inflicted gunshot wound just above his heart. Oh, wow. He, yeah. That's, um, you said two months after? Two months after. Yes, that sucks. Horrible. And they were looking for James Sr. in attempt to serve him divorce papers. So at that time, uh, Larry's father was living by himself in his apartment, I'm assuming separated from Larry's mother, and perhaps with all the trauma from losing his son and the divorce from his wife, I'm not sure. I, I think that we can all kind of come to our own conclusions with that one. Right. And regarding Larry's mother, it didn't say much, but it sounded like she had passed away at an early age as well. Again, this was a long time ago when... Well, I know the 70s weren't that long ago, <laughs> but we had we just have less resources to work with. And so, unfortunately, he had a lot of trauma in his life from a pretty young age. Regardless, even if he was 18 years old when all of this was taking place, that's still really young to go through all that. Yeah, that's a lot to go through before even graduating high school. So, I'm sure it had yeah. a, a pretty big toll on him mentally. Well, I think he was graduate. I think it was the same year he graduated from UNR with his bachelor's. So I think he was maybe like 2021 or I'm not 100% sure. But regardless, that's not, not easy stuff to deal with. 
However, despite the traumatic events, Larry would continue to pursue his education and graduate from the University of Pacific's McGeorge Law School in 1974, finishing at the top of his class. Larry passed both the California and the Nevada bars and formed a law partnership with Ron J. Bath in 1977. Larry excelled as an attorney and was involved in a few pretty well-known cases, but he had but he also enjoyed having fun in his time off. So he would always pick up the check when out with his friends, and he would say stuff like, you can't put a price on a good time. <laughs> Larry stood at six feet tall, 200 pounds, and was pretty fit. He was loved by women, and when you were around him, you couldn't help but smile. Larry enjoyed his alcohol, however, and it wasn't uncommon for him to periodically disappear or go on a bender. According to friends and family, he would be gone a week or two at the most, but usually not longer than that. Which, I mean, even being gone for a week or two, that is still kind of scary. And I think one of the sources said that they would always make sure to saying like, have you seen Larry or something like that? So I think that they normalized it pretty, I guess, they normalized it, but I, I still think that that's kind of um, something to be concerned about. Was he single at the time? So, yes and no. He, and, and we'll get there, but, I mean, during his benders, I don't really know specifically because they didn't specify how many benders and what he who he was with and that sort of thing, but we, we will get there. Okay, got it. So because of his troubles with alcohol, his partnership with Bath dissolved and he would open up his own personal injury practice in Reno. So Larry would marry again and he would have two more children named uh, Tavia and Joe. Larry would have a total of four failed marriages. Um, I don't know again about the timeline of that, when each marriage started, when each marriage dissolved, but kind of a lot of marriages. He was also in and out of rehab facilities in attempts to control his drinking. It has been said by a few sources that because of his drinking, he was mentally abusive to women. However, his family does deny this claim, saying he wasn't perfect, but he was never an abuser. After his third stint in rehab, he met a Reno native named Cheryl. Cheryl was a good fit for him because she really understood that she needed to do different things with Larry. So different activities, different values, different lifestyle. Throughout his relationship with Cheryl, he was the most stable, sober, and grounded he had ever been. He would wake up every morning and meditate, and he was determined to, to find inner peace and center himself. It was also said that they, like, joined a cult. What? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. But, like, this cult, like, their purpose was to find inner peace. And so it was funny during, I think it was, like, a 2020 special that Cheryl was on and she was talking. She's like, yeah, you can call it a cult if you want to. <laughs> but we just really wanted to find inner peace. So I'm not sure what that means. So, But I guess. Okay. Go ahead. So how old are they at this point? Like, how old is Larry? Um... So let's see, this is starting to go towards the 90s. So probably like if he was born in, what did I say, 48? Oh, so he's like in his 40s. Yeah. Okay, so by the time he was in his like mid to late 40s, he'd had four failed marriages and this is his fifth relationship? Like, 
I, this is his, I mean, this is one of the more serious relationships that he had. And I think he had a lot of relationships with women, but this one, they were together for several years. And I think that their relationship was one that stood out because it was different and it kind of defied the odds of him um, having these like shorter relationships and things not working out and him turning to alcohol because he was with her and he was sober and he was bettering himself. But they were not married, right? Correct. Okay. So, I mean, going back to the cult, <laughs> um, Larry, it wasn't something that Larry was he was spectacle about it because he didn't like taking orders from other people. So he decided not to, I guess, further his participation in the cult. And he went back to practicing law. Um, and in 91, he wanted to change his image. So he met with an advertising manager. He was making a ton of money. One source said $300,000 a month, but I was, I didn't put that in there because I was a month. Yeah. Damn. I know, I'm in the wrong field, man. Yeah, I don't, well, I don't want to go to school for all that, but yeah. <laughs> no. Um, and so he was making a ton of money, and he got caught up in um, the materialistics of it all, and he the appearances and that sort of thing, um, which ultimately led him to want to open a practice in Las Vegas, which, if you've ever heard of Vegas before, then you know that it's probably not the best place for, like, a recovering alcoholic to go. Uh, I've never uh, heard of Vegas. What is that? Uh, <laughs> you can Google it. I'll let, I'll let you take the lead on that no, one. No, so, funny story, though. I've never been to Vegas, which is hilarious with how much I love to gamble. But, yeah, I've never, <laughs> I've never been there, so it's still on my bucket list. I've been there once with my family, and it was fun, but it's not... It wouldn't be, like, my first destination to choose. I don't know. It's I don't love huge crowds of people. I don't like being around drunk people. Yeah. I, I like, like, gambling is fun. I like doing slots. That's really it. I don't like playing cards or anything like that, but... Yeah, my thing with Vegas is I would much rather do all, like, the touristy stuff around Vegas. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, I want to do the casinos, but I would love to do, like the black mailbox and go see like all of the uh ufo sighting areas and like right. the hoover dam and all that stuff i don't really want to hang out in vegas exactly and i live in nevada so if i want to go gamble you can literally like, go out I your can, front door <laughs> i can find a casino on the way to target it's not yeah. hard <laughs> um yeah i, I yeah. <laughs> so anyways cheryl kind of foresaw that this was going to be maybe not the best idea but if larry was going to do something he was going to do it so in the summer of 95 he had started his practice in vegas and he was looking for a receptionist to come join his practice i can see where this is going (laughs) Mm -hmm. so alicia barish saw the advertisement and came in she was a young mother going through a divorce from las vegas insurance broker Ken Redelsberger, and that's the only time I say that last name, so. Can you, could you, could you say it for me one more time? No, because I don't <laughs> even know if I said it right. <laughs> she needed a job to take care of her, her daughter, and her horse. So, Alicia was, or Elisa was hired and began to take control of the office. Larry was completely captivated by Elisa especially since she was 17 years younger than him, 
which is only three years younger than his daughter. Ew. Yeah. He found her very attractive and immediately pursued a relationship with her besides still being involved with Cheryl. So that's unfortunate. And I don't mean to say um, ew to, like, age gap relationships, but it's always just kind of creepy when it's, like, somebody so close in age to a child of yours. Because it's, like, yeah. you could have dated your one of your kids' friends, like, or something, you know what I mean? Okay, I, uh, yeah, so at my high school, there was a teacher at my high school that actually married his daughter's best friend. Ew. Yeah, so I understand what you're saying, and it's like, and I, I, and I do think that once you're a little bit older, age does, doesn't play as a, as much of a role as it does, like, when you're younger, but yeah, I just, I think that if that was my parent, I would, I would be like, come on. And especially since it was said multiple times, oh, he, he was so into her because she was so much younger. Like that's really what solidified his attraction to her. That's kind of a red flag. Well, and like my thing is too, is like, I couldn't even date anybody that had the same name as somebody in my family. Like I'm not going to date somebody that has the same name as my brothers or a, yep. a cousin or anything. Cause it's just like. Oh, hey, cousin with the same name. Meet my boyfriend with the same name. It's just weird because you're intimate with it's, that person. I so. <laughs> I feel the same way, and I've, I've always felt like that was such an irrational fear, but I'm glad to know that I at least share that fear with one No, other no, no. It's not irrational at all because it's just kind of creepy. <laughs> it is kind of creepy, or like the, especially if it's like a parent or something. Yes. Like I would never date a guy with the same name as my dad. I feel like that would be so weird. Unless he goes by like a middle name or something. Like, if his name was, mm -hmm. like, I don't know, Bert, and, like, he had the same name. His name was Bert Garrett, but he went by Garrett. That's different. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just. Yeah, I know. It's, or, like, you would become involved with that person, and you're like, okay, from now on, you're going by this. Yeah, exactly. Like, you sorry. would just change their name anyway, so. Yeah. Yeah, totally. No, thank you. Yeah. Anyways, um, so this relationship would prove to be difficult, especially when it came to Elisa's daughter, Haley. And Haley really remained silent about this whole case until she was much older, and then she kind of reflected back and forth back on it. Um, so when, you, when I referenced anything that Haley said, this is really like the first time that she was speaking out about the case. And one of the things that she mentioned was that she can remember smelling alcohol in Larry's breath at when she was like eight years old and that really kind of stuck out to her because as an eight-year-old I don't even really know how you know what the smell of alcohol is yeah but it must it must be kind of jarring to know at, at such a young age have that instinct oh this is not great right um so she would also recall several fights that Larry and her mom would have. And Haley spent a lot of her time at her mom's most recent ex-husband's house, Ken, which is kind of strange because the marriage to Ken only lasted six months. But I also feel like, I'm, I mean, I'm not judging that at all because I feel like if you have someone that's, if you're not capable of taking care of your child and you find someone that is, I think that that's a better solution than putting that child in any sort of danger. And I'm not saying that Larry was dangerous or anything like that, but I think you can kind of get what I'm saying. Well, I mean, if they're fighting all the time, you definitely don't want your kid being exposed to that. So Ken is her ex-husband, but not her daughter's father. Correct. Okay. And I don't know who her father is. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, their relationship 
her marriage to Ken lasted six months, Elisa's did, and um, so Haley would spend a lot of time with him still. And Elisa seemed to really enable Larry's drinking, and she would also isolate him from his friends and family, which, as we know, is a very toxic trait, and it's ultimately a way to control a person when you isolate them from their family or their friends. It's just a way for you to dictate everything that they do. So, hold on, just really quick. Was he still seeing Cheryl through all of this? No, so he ended his seven-year relationship with Cheryl um, and started dating Elisa after two months of knowing her. So she came in, she was the receptionist. I, I, I must have skipped over that, I'm sorry. She came in, she was the receptionist. He was completely captivated by her. He was still with Cheryl, and then two months later, he ended his relationship with Cheryl, and he was with Elisa. Got it, okay. Yeah. It, it, makes, it makes sense, like, why... Elisa is enabling him. I don't know if she's necessarily an enabler or if it's more of just a fear thing because, like, I've definitely been in that position where it's just better to give that person what they want than to fight the repercussions of if they don't get their booze or whatever their fix is. Right. So I see why she did it, um, and it just sucks because she's definitely in a cycle at this point. Yeah. She would isolate him from his family and friends. And Larry's family and friends would immediately, they were like, there's something off with her. This woman is very strange. She's not only is she controlling, but she would never really talk about herself, never really talk about her past. If you asked her, where did you go to high school? The next thing you know, you'd be talking about skiing. So just weird things that, I mean, everyone. She's isolating him. She's isolating him. Oh, I thought it was the other way around. Okay. No, 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 no. No, so she comes into this relationship, and then all of a sudden, like, Larry's drinking has just gotten out of control again. She will not let him see his family. She won't let him see his friends. Oh, I and, see, And I she's see. not, yeah, and she won't tell anyone, like what, her, like, what her past is. So it sounds like, so she's controlling, so she's also providing, so she is definitely enabling. I take back everything I just said. So she is enabling him in a way to control him because it's like giving a drug addict the drug of choice after they've been clean for so long. It's just like, I can give this to you and I will give you everything you want from me, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like using it as a tactic to keep him where she wants Under him. her control. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Especially, especially like when, because when people are drinking, their inhibitions get lowered and they're much easier to control that way, quite frankly. So they continued to live a lavish lifestyle, buying luxury vehicles, chartering private jets, partying, and using cocaine, according, quote unquote, allegedly. It was apparent from the beginning that Elisa was enabling him, and one time Larry confided in his friend Fred Atchison, whom he met sophomore year at UNR, he said, he said to Fred, I don't even know who this lady is and Fred kind of brushed it off and he was like well who do how do we ever know who the person we're dating is and Larry was like no I don't know if she's is who she's telling me she is and Larry also told Fred that he would have to hide his wallet from her he couldn't even like keep it in his pants because she would just take it oh nice oh, I know 
So Fred suggested that Larry separate from her, and then that was the last time that Fred ever spoke to Larry. And in addition to that, Elisa also cut Larry off, like cut his daughter, uh, Tavia, out of the picture. She would write letters, she would send gifts, but Elisa would always intercept them. So she would ask her dad, oh, did you get this shirt I sent you? And he would be like, no, what are you talking about? And it never was returned to her. Same thing with the letters. Wow. Nothing. And this was pretty out of character for Larry because prior to this, he kind of was the more dominant one in the relationship. So in 1998, Larry McNabney was reprimanded by the State Bar of Nevada because Elisa, the COO of his law firm in Vegas at this time, had misappropriated about $74,000 from Larry's clients. Wow. So she went from secretary to COO? Yeah, real quick. Okay. Yeah. Naturally, the next thing that Larry and Elisa do would be get married and open a new practice in Sacramento, California. Sounds like the the right next steps to take. <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to laugh at Larry's expense, but it's just, ugh, that sucks. No, it does, but that's the thing about controlling toxic people is that you, it's so hard to get out of that situation, and I think they are so manipulative and such good gaslighters oh for sure they find a reason for everything they find an excuse for everything this was necessary because of this or I didn't realize that I was doing you know what I mean it's just yeah yeah for sure it happens way too frequently and it's definitely a very vicious cycle and it's hard to get out of yep um once they arrived in Sacramento they started to get more involved in the equine community so they would travel around the country showing horses and this seemed to be something that would stabilize their relationship but they still definitely had their issues he was still very isolated from his family and she still had a hold over him as their new practice was blooming in sacramento they hired a new secretary because i'm sure elisa was probably the coo of this and she had way too much to do i know this case you do it just dawned on me i know this case yeah Okay, okay, sorry. I don't remember okay. everything about it. It's been a while, so I won't I won't say anything. <laughs> okay. So they had to hire a new secretary and they interviewed while well, Elisa interviewed a student from Sacramento State named Sarah Dutra. Sarah was a tall, blonde, smart student looking for a part-time job or a summer job. Um, so her and Elisa became fast friends and Sarah was hired to help with the practice. Sarah and Elisa spent a lot of time together going out for drinks, shopping, and spending most of their free time together, and the business ultimately started to suffer. Larry didn't really approve of this friendship, and he would become frustrated with Elisa because she was spending so much time with Sarah. In spite of this, Elisa just isolated Larry more, and he became even more disengaged with the practice. He even asked Elisa to fire Sarah and she like just she wouldn't. In September of 2001, Sari and Elisa headed south for a horse show in Los Angeles. To Larry's dismay, Sarah met them in Los Angeles and joined them for dinner on September 9th. This was very upsetting to Larry and he I guess she just shows up at dinner and he just goes straight up to his room and um, went I guess to bed or whatever amid her arrival and 
According to a newspaper article, on September 10th, he arrived at the competition confused. He told his friends he felt sick and went up to the hotel room. The next morning, friends saw a do not disturb sign on the McNabney's door and the couple's pickup truck had a wheelchair and two spade shovels in it. That's not good. <laughs> no. Considering none of them needed a wheelchair, correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Larry McNabney was never seen alive again. Back in Sacramento during the succeeding months, Elisa and Sarah would continue to uh, run the law practice in Larry's absence. When people would inquire about his absence, they would make excuses like, he was in rehab, he's golfing, he's in Costa Rica, etc. Because they were often absent from work, they also had to hire a third secretary. <laughs> so this is just getting excessive with the secretary. Like, dude, it's just a secretary office at this point. It's not even a law office. Well, do they have multiple lawyers working for them? It sounded like it was just his practice. Okay. So it's like literally they don't have a lawyer to do what the job that people are hiring him for. No, he's in Costa Rica. He's <laughs> yeah, so it's like just these two, well, one. Three. One former secretary, one current secretary, and another secretary are running this law office with no lawyer. Yeah. Okay, makes sense. Get to hire them yeah. for sure. So, yes, they hire a third secretary, and her name is Ginger Miller. So, Ginger was also told several lies about Larry's whereabouts, because she was just hired by these two women. She didn't meet Larry, obviously. Right. Um, so, some of the lies that they told was, he's in rehab, he's in Oregon. Oh, okay, he left one rehab, and now he went to a 12-month rehab, so you won't see him for a whole year. Which I would be like, then why am I here? Yeah. But, anyways. Um or, like, you just missed him, etc. So, all of these... So, she just is getting the, the roundabout, whatever. And then his children are starting to get worried as well. They would, would reach out to Elisa, and she, it was just the same thing. Her just kind of feeding everyone this, this bull crap. Um, so, and then Elisa also confided in Ginger that her and Larry were separating, but they were going to keep the practice. Ginger would also observe... Elisa and Sarah forging Larry's signature on documents and writing checks for themselves. So they would do that for a while. They would write checks for themselves, and then sometimes they would write a check and put it in Ginger's name for, like, $3,000, have her go to the ATM, or have her, sorry, not the ATM, go to the bank, cash the check, bring it back in an envelope, and then they would, like, go shopping. And they would, like, buy matching underwear and stuff. It was kind of creepy. Ew. Um... Also, I thought you said we were going to say her name was Ginger Minge, and I was like, the drag queen, but then you said Miller, and I was like, ah. <laughs> There's so much to this episode. <laughs> On November 30th, Ginger had enough, and she went to the police. She told them that her boss was missing, and she thinks that his wife and secretary did it. So the police started looking into it, attempting to locate Larry. The sheriff's department contacts Elisa regarding Larry's whereabouts, but she was able to answer all the questions without any, like, hesitation or any red flags. And so, with that, they, I mean, they, they couldn't really keep her. So, after she was questioned, Elisa goes to Ginger and asks her to help her pack her car. 
And so at this point, Ginger's like playing the role of the accomplice. So she's helping Elisa pack her car. And they're also taking trips to like their trailer, their fifth wheel, camper, whatever you want to call it, stashing things in there, putting things in her Jaguar. And so Ginger's also calling the police. She's like, uh, I think she's going to run, but I'm like helping her pack because I don't want her to know that I'm like onto her. Also, I'd be like, um, I'm a secretary, not your personal assistant. So no, I'm not helping you pack. I know, and she, at this point, she wasn't getting paid because, like, I don't, I don't know what was going on with the practice, but since there was no, like, law practicing, I don't think that they were making much money. Aye, aye, aye. Yes, as Elisa, so Elisa basically goes out the back way of the parking lot as the cops are coming in. <laughs> so she's, like, able to get away. Nice. No issue, yeah. So, since... And I don't know that they really look for her. I, I don't know. That, that's why this case is a little bit weird because the next person that they go to is Sarah. So they bring Sarah in on January 31st. Like she's dressed in all pink and she's like holding a little white and like ambiguous breed dog. <laughs> ambiguous <And>, breed. <laughs> yeah. Like Leo. That's funny. <laughs> Yeah, so, I don't know. If I was being interrogated, I probably wouldn't bring my dog. Uh, no, not really. That's like bringing your um, kid into an interrogation. Like, you don't want your kid there. No, because I would be like, how long am I going to be here for? Like, this is, like, are they going to let me take my dog out? Yeah. Like, anyways. Um, and then one source said that her dog's name was Munchie. And then another source said it was Ralph. <laughs> Those are two completely different names. <laughs> so I just, like, I didn't put the dog's name in here because I don't know which one it is. Uh, well, Munchie or Ralph, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, either one. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, like, that was, at least, at least it had a dog in it. I don't know. Whatever, it doesn't matter. So Sarah told the officers that actually she was looking for Larry, too, and she kept asking Elisa, where is he? And Elisa would tell her, he'll call sometimes and hang up on me. And, like, that's, that's all she had to say about that. And then Sarah also maintained that she hadn't um, been in contact with Larry. And, in fact, she hadn't heard from Elisa either. And she said in her interrogation, things were starting to not look right. Like, you know, Elisa wouldn't come into work all the time, you know. And that's a direct quote. <laughs> you know. She said the last... <laughs> so casual. Yeah. She said the last time she heard from Elisa was in early January, and then she left for Arizona for a horse show. So, for this horse show, according to Sarah, Elisa invited Sarah, and she said, yeah, we're going to go to this horse show. The tick, There's a plane ticket for you at the airport. You just have to go to the airport and get your ticket, fly to Arizona, and I'll meet you there. But when Sarah got to the airport, there was, like, no ticket for her. So, that's... Yeah, Sorry, know. I'm just processing everything. It's, yeah. It's just a lot. <laughs> I know, it's a lot. I'm sorry, and it's just going to get worse. Okay, good. Less than a week later, on February 5th, 2002, in a vineyard in San Joaquin County, protruding from the dirt, a farmer found a human foot. Fingerprints confirmed the body to be that of Larry McNabney. Larry had been deceased for months, but there was no obvious cause of death. Even more perplexing was that the body was really well-preserved. 
After performing the autopsy, the ME still didn't know the cause of death, but when the toxology report came back, it indicated high levels of xylazine, which I can see the look on your face because I didn't know what that <laughs> was either, but it is a horse tranquilizer. Got it. Okay. Um, now that they had a body, the FBI really needed to locate Avisa. So detectives from San Joaquin County bring Sarah Dutra back in on February 7th for a second interview. This time she, she didn't bring her dog. Oh, good. By the way. That, that's good. Yeah. But she was wearing a pink fur coat. I just feel like that's really important to mention. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the color pink. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with pink and there's nothing wrong with a fur coat. But I just feel like there's a time and a place for everything. And I don't know that an interrogation room in the San Joaquin County Sheriff's Office is the appropriate attire for that sort of circumstance. Yeah, and there is something wrong with a real fur coat. Fake fur, go for it. But real fur, I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) and you dyed it pink? Like, no, thank you. Yeah, anyways. But if there's anyone out there that has worn a pink fur coat to an interrogation, then... Um, Let us know. Because <laughs> yeah. I want to know why you got interrogated to begin with. <laughs> and why you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> Save it for the listener to Yeah. Um, so she... Sarah continued to deny any further knowledge, but she was not very convincing in her interrogation so she said i am sick right now to think that larry mcnabney is dead and who would do that to larry and then the officers asked who do you think did it and she said i don't know who would do that and the officers are like sarah come on what makes the most sense and she like scolds and she says uh lisa i mean that's the only person i could think of that would do that okay so So. immediately rats her out Well, yeah, and uh, I don't know, it's just, anyways. So, Elisa and Haley are on the run, basically. Police take a deep dive into Elisa, and they discover Elisa McNabney, or Elisa Barish, does not exist. Figures. Uh, Also, how old is Haley at this point, the daughter? At this point, she's 15. Okay, got it, okay. Yeah, because she, she, one thing too that she said in one of the interviews was she was really almost jealous of Sarah because Sarah was a college student, so she wasn't too much older than Elisa, and she, her mom was spending all this time with Sarah, and she's like, why don't you spend that time with me? I like going shopping. I like going out to dinner, and so it was... Well, wasn't there also, I don't know if you cover this later, but wasn't there also a rumor that Elisa and Sarah were romantically involved? Yeah, I'm getting. Okay, there. sorry. I was like, yeah. no, I was okay. like, that sound. I think that's what I remember about this case, but I wasn't sure. I mean, they were buying matching underwear, so it's like. I mean, Kara, they were we could get matching underwear too if you really wanted to. Oh my god, can we <laughs> with our logo? Yeah, and then we just plan out which days we wear it on. So it's gonna be like those days of the week underwear you used to get when you were a kid that said like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. It'll be like that. <laughs> I can't wait. You sound really thrilled. I'm so excited. I hate you. So, <laughs> like, there's so much more things we could spend our money I on. I know. Than, like, we can't. Underwear with our logo on. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I feel like 
I just feel like any underwear that you buy that you have to like have something printed on it, it's probably not going to be that comfortable. And I like my underwear to be comfortable. And also like you're the only one that's going to see it and maybe like one to two other people. So. <laughs> two? I mean, I don't know what people are into. Like not to judge. <laughs> mm, okay. Anyway, go back uh, to your story. Anyway. <laughs> that was a very strange tangent. While looking for Elisa, authorities discovered that this woman has had dozens of aliases and a rap sheet of about 113 pages. The true identity of Alicia or Elisa Farish was Lauren Sims Jordan. So for the sake of just keeping things simple, I'm going to continue to call her Elisa just because I don't want to all of a sudden call, start calling her Lauren, even though that's her name. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, Elisa was originally from Brooksville, Florida. She grew up in a prominent family who had been there for generations. Elisa was a very intelligent girl, an honor roll student and an athlete who got pregnant in high school. Her and her boyfriend ran away to get married, although they divorced before the baby was born. Elisa had her daughter, Haley, nine days after her 19th birthday. She also had a son shortly after Haley. I'm not sure about the timeline, but he isn't really a huge part of the story, and it sounds like she kind of left him to stay with family in Florida. Although Elisa had an IQ of about 145, she couldn't really keep a handle on the finances and would eventually start shoplifting. She would continue to write bad checks, and this is the beginning of a long criminal history. Haley recalls her mom, oftentimes they would wake up in the middle of the night every six months or so, and she would put her in the car, and they would have to get out of town because they were being evicted or they couldn't make rent. And even at a young age, Haley knew that this was not normal, and she was able to recognize that her mom did not know how to put Haley's needs before her own wants, which is really sad. And for a child to be so young and to have that insight is, I mean, that must have been really hard. Yeah, every time I do an eviction, I always, like, think about the kids because I'm like, that's got to suck. Because you know once they get to a certain age, they have an idea of what's going on. Yeah. So, that sucks. I know, it's, it's really hard. So, Haley would actually learn how to balance the checkbooks and kind of keep her mom on track. Um, so some of the things in her rap sheet included, um, stolen property, grand theft, credit card fraud, all of those. And at one point she was dating a married man who was allegedly in the process of getting a divorce, but we all know how that's not always true. I don't know what the case is for this one. I really don't. But anyways, Elisa trespassed into this house, the house where I don't know if he lived there with his wife or it was just the ex-wife or wife, whatever it was. And she stole the Christmas presents from underneath the tree because she wanted, yeah, I know. Um, and so for that, she got in pretty big trouble and she ended up serving time in prison from 91 to 92 for violating probation. Um, yeah. So Grand theft, fraud, all of it. And when she was in prison in 91 and 92, that's where she met a woman named Elizabeth Farish. So that's where she got the name 
um, Elisa Barish. So she stole her name and this woman's identity, her social security, and she just became that person. But she changed it from Elizabeth to Elisa. She Yeah, she just, like, shortened it. She probably thought it was more trendy or something stupid okay. like that. No offense to anyone that's, that's done that with the name Elizabeth. It's a beautiful name, and El- Elisa is, too. It is my middle name, so. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and then this this lady, she violates her parole by going to a sports event. Uh, guess where her parole officer was that night? Was he also at the sports event? Uh. He sure was. <laughs> I hate her. <laughs> yeah. So she told, so basically she tells Haley, like, we need to leave. We need to get out of here. And so she asked Haley if she wants to stay with her grandparents, but Haley said no. She wants to stay with her mom. And so, um, and Haley was eight years old at this time. They went to Texas primarily for the horses and then Elisa shoplifts and they get arrested and they take her into custody, but she makes bail. So now she's like, okay, now we need to go to Vegas. Perfect place for a criminal. I just, I wonder who's watching her daughter, like, every time she's just, like, getting arrested. I don't know. Like, oh, see you in a few days. Gotta go do some jail time real quick. Like. And for that to be a normal experience for that child, too. Yeah. I, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. So they went to Vegas in 93, and she rented an apartment, but she couldn't afford anything for the apartment, so she decided to meet a businessman instead, and that's when she met Ken. And Elisa and Ken got married through a drive-through wedding chapel in Vegas, despite her stealing from him. So she stole his credit cards, and he was like, "Naturally, the next step here is for us to get married." And he was aware of it. Correct. Oh gosh. But then she stole like she racked up like thirty thousand dollars of credit card debt, and he was like, "Okay, this is too much." Like. That's where I draw the line. That would take so long for me to do. Like, I even just went to Disneyland and basically did whatever I wanted. Like, I did not spend more than, like, a few thousand dollars on the entire trip. So, it's like $30,000. But it wasn't her money. So, like, you are spending your money that you earn. She's just out there spending someone else's money. She doesn't care. But on it's what? Her, it's just a free ride. Just, um, just stuff? I have no idea. I I hate her. (laughs) I don't even know what she's officially done yet in this case, but I I hate her. No, she, yeah. It's, it's, we're, we're still like, we're not still at like the tip of the iceberg. We're like a little further down, but we're not to like the very bottom of the iceberg. Not the fully hidden part of the iceberg that's under the water. (laughs) We're not submerged. Got it. Okay. So at this point, so now that she was divorcing from Ken, she needed to find a job, which is when she met Larry. So now we're going to kind of go back to when Larry's body was discovered and she was on the run, now that we have some background on her. So after several weeks on the run, Elisa met a man at a golf tournament in Mississippi. He owned a beachfront condo in Destin, Florida, and he allowed her to go stay there free of charge. So she's waiting tables, and she has a second job, and guess what her second job is? What? She's a secretary at a law firm. At a different law firm? Yeah, in Florida. Oh my gosh, okay. I mean, so she has experience, and that's why she got hired, I guess? 
okay, but how do you put that on a resume if you're wanted in so many places? Like, how do you put, oh, I was, I was a COO at Larry McNabney's secretary. Yeah. He's the guy that was just turned up dead. I mean, like, do most employers even look into that stuff anymore, though? I do. A lot of places don't because they don't want to get in trouble with, well, I guess because I work in California, it's different. Cause I think it is a little bit different, but like when I do employment verifications, I call and I say, the first thing I say is, is this person rehirable? And then I kind of let the conversation drive itself from there, but mostly I'm just calling to verify that, that person did work there and if they are rehirable. But sometimes, depending on what it, who it is, like how the conversation's going, I'll feel comfortable enough to say is there anything you feel comfortable disclosing Mm -hmm. but I mean well I don't know it's tricky and we don't know how she got hired either so she could have put like Sarah's number down that's exactly what it is and I think a lot of people I think that's what a lot of people are doing to validate their references because it's like they just put a fake number down and then have that person call this person and they're like oh yeah like she was great and I mean it could be your best friend or whatever well I mean I'm sure she was extremely charismatic to get away with all this crap so I mean if you just flash your whatever like if you just you know bat your eyelashes a little bit and you know? Yeah, unfortunately, that's true, and that does work in a lot of circumstances. And this is also 21 years ago, so... Well, it's also a law office, so, I mean, it's probably smaller scale where it's only a few people work there. Right, and, like, with background checks and stuff, I can submit a background check, and I can have it back in a couple days. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, before the internet was what it is today, I think it was a lot more difficult and probably a lot more costly. If they were even being ran, most places probably didn't even do them. Yeah. I know, like, back in the day, like, before I taught preschool, I had to do the fingerprint scan, and, like, that was, I mean, I think that took, like, two weeks, and that was probably in 2010. Yeah, when you work with this, like, kids, you have to get your fingerprints mm-hmm. done and everything. So she's working as a secretary at a law firm, and she's going by the name, there, she's going by the name Shane Ivoroni, and Haley is going by the name Penelope Ivoroni. Shane? Shane. That, okay. I'm just gonna keep my comments to myself on that one, because that doesn't make any sense. If I had to, I don't know, if I had to come up with an alias, like, I really like the name Felicity, but I don't know, I'm not a redhead, so... I know, like, I love the name Scarlet. Like, I would do something real bougie, like... Yeah, (laughs) And completely different. Or, like, Sophia. Yeah, just (laughs) completely opposite, but, I mean, Shane is a guy's name. I mean, I don't don't know know any women named Shane, so, I mean, if there is, sorry, but... I don't know. It's just kind of an odd choice. Also, I just don't like her, so I'm just going to bash everything she does at this point. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's okay to be a little biased. Oh, okay, good. In March of 2002, the guy's condo who she was living in, the one who was playing golf in Mississippi, he noticed fraudulent charges on his credit card. She just does not know when to stop. Like, you're supposed to be keeping her low profile. You're on the run. No, it's like a compulsion thing with her. It's like... She has no self-control. So he calls the law firm that she's working for, and she gives the, or he, sorry, he calls the law firm and gives them a heads up, and they run the plates and discover who she was. So she still has the same car? Yes. Oh my gosh, she's an idiot. Okay. 
I mean, again, this was like 21 years ago, so I don't know with like license plates how quickly they were able to get that information. But like maybe she changed her plates. I don't know. She could have had at least. Well, I mean, it's like people don't realize like at that time, like tracing calls and stuff, you know, people weren't catching on to those things. So she probably just didn't even realize. But she's also probably just such an idiot that she didn't think about it. Because I'm yeah. sure it was a nice car that Larry paid yeah, for. Yeah, it was a red Jaguar, like, convertible. Oh, yeah, so she wasn't even paying for it. That's something Larry bought her that she bought with his money. So she's too materialistic to let it go. She could have just sold that and, like, lived off of the cash for several no. months. She could have gone to Mexico with that cash and been fine, but she's too caught up in appearances. Yeah, that's exactly what it items. is. Like, if people really wanted to get away with something, they would just go to a different country but she didn't want to go to a different country. She was comfortable and just wanted to just keep scheming. So she's just an idiot. So once again, she feels the walls closing in. She meets up with a gentleman, spends the night at his house, and in the morning, she takes $600 out of his wallet and steals his pickup truck, leaving behind her red Jaguar. She picks up Haley from a friend's house, and they start to head north to Charleston, South Carolina, to start their new life. And then at this point, Haley is just done. She's like, I can't do this anymore. This isn't fair to me. She's stressed. She's anxious. She's like scared for her life. And she tells her mom, I'm done running. So Elisa pulls the car over and is prepared to tell Haley everything. And she tells Haley that she killed Larry. Um, the next morning. Imagine your mom is just like... Hi, honey. I killed somebody. Like, what? Yeah. And it so it sounds like that she's that she, she tells Haley the way she tells her is like, okay, I need you to not freak out. Oh, super cash about it. <laughs> but which is not fair because asking someone or telling someone how they need to react to a certain situation and how they need to handle their emotions, number one, is not fair, especially in this kind of situation where it's something this detrimental. That's like telling somebody, like, okay, don't get mad at me, but I cheated on you. It's like, no, I'm going to get mad at you. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> it's also not fair because now, now that Haley... Now Haley is a part of this. And so now Haley has a moral obligation. At 15 years old, she's like, okay, well, she's smart enough to realize if she doesn't, like, this is going to impact her because she either needs to tell someone or she needs to, like, trust that her mom's going to tell something because now she's roped into this. Yeah. So not only did she tell her how she needs to handle her emotions, but she brought her into this. So the next morning, they drive back to Destin in Florida. Elisa drops off Haley, and she just heads out. And Haley is freaking out. She's thinking her mom's going to do something to hurt herself. So Haley reaches out to the police. Um, and they put an APB on the vehicle she's driving, so the truck that she stole. They have units in the air as well as the ground. They look in bars. They look hotels. They look at beaches. And finally, they find the car in a parking lot across from the beach. And sure enough, they find her. It was, I think, at a pool that was on the beach. One source said it was at the pool. One per person said, one source said that it was 
on the beach, but they have like those resorts on the beach. So the cops start walking towards her and she walks up to them and she says, it's me you're looking for. <laughs> Which is like, all I can think of is the Lionel Richie. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> is it me you're, looking, you're for? looking for? <laughs> it's just like, if you're going to give yourself, I don't know. If you're going to give yourself up like that, like just surrender at the beginning. Like why do all of this? I don't know. I think it's just she was running and she knew something was going to happen and she had maybe she had a guilty conscience i don't know she's done a lot of really messed up stuff in the past so i don't know i think and i think she might just be a little narcissistic not a little but a lot narcissistic because she's like yeah. oh i'm gonna get away with this like that's why she exactly. didn't immediately get a new car and that's why when she did flee with the other guy's truck like she didn't think she would get caught and then when they catch her it's like Hi, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, and then she, she it puts the control back on her too because she's the one that said, "Yeah, it's me." Hi, it's yeah. me. And also, like, very, very narcissistic out there, spending other people's money and just so arrogant to the point that she thinks she's doing everything perfectly. But why didn't you? And I'm not giving anyone any sort of advice on if they commit a crime. I'm not saying you should run to Mexico, but probably wouldn't I, I don't know I just I don't understand how these people commit these crimes and these heinous things and like I just remember one time when I was in high school I was house sitting for my grandpa and I like I had a few people over I had like a party at his house and I felt sick for weeks and I finally told my parents and I had to like sit down with my grandpa and tell him what I did I threw a party at his house and there was maybe like 10 people there so it wasn't like a huge party or anything like that but I felt so incredibly sick and like I thought that I had done the worst thing yeah and I still like had to yeah so I don't know I just don't know how people live live with these guilty with their guilty it's, conscience I really don't it's because we're decent human beings and we have like that what is that called um like a moral compass. Thank you. Yeah, I was like, the path, the something. <laughs> like, <laughs> our moral compass is correct, but it's like, exactly. She went from all the way from Vegas, big town, big city, to Florida. Big city energy. Like, there's a lot going on in Florida. She very well could have settled in Alabama mm -hmm. in, like, the Midwest somewhere where nobody's going to see her. But she chose to go from big crazy city to another big crazy city. So, like... She doesn't, she's not thinking of it as, like, a strategic thing. It's just, like, what is she going to get out of it? Yeah, where does she want to go? She wants to go somewhere where it's warm, somewhere where there's, like, a nightlife. Yeah. Somewhere where there's money. There's men that are available to for mm -hmm. her to steal. Which, $600 in that one guy's wallet, that's a lot of money to just have in your wallet. That is a lot of money. I wonder if maybe he thought she was a prostitute and he had to pay her. Maybe she was prostituting. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, who knows. So police take her into interrogation where she told investigators, I knew something was going to happen. Either I needed to put a bullet in my head or I needed to deal with it. And did I kill my husband? Yes, I killed my husband. Elisa claimed that Larry had become increasingly violent and erotic, erratic from <laughs> substance abuse. <laughs> Sorry. She said that there were times she would wake up and he would be strangling her. However, Elisa said none of this was her idea. 
Elisa claims that she confided in her friend Sarah, and Sarah came up with the entire plan of killing Larry McNabney. Go figure. Elisa, she had nothing to do with it. No, she just was like a poor, battered woman. Ugh. Elisa said, I never would have thought of that on my own. And she also told detectives that with Sarah, that while her and Sarah were talking about it, they were just casually talking about it. Like, this wasn't her plan. Like, she didn't think of it, but they both reached the conclusion, if we kill him, no one's going to miss him. That's fucked up. Which is horrible to say about anyone, but especially someone that has children. Well, and, like, somebody who had a good person in their life, because he had Cheryl and was doing well, um, and then meets this other person who unfortunately corrupts them and just completely destroys their lives it's it sucks and it's just like how are you who are you to say that nobody's gonna miss them like I have one friend and I guarantee you you're gonna miss me if something happened to me <laughs> exactly and we have like really solid families too, too so yeah. there's that and also he had the potential to be so great he just needed the right support right and that, he had that with Cheryl, so he had that support, and he had someone there with him, guiding him, and, and then, so, and then Elisa starts talking about the horse show in Los Angeles. So, on September 9th, according to Elisa, Larry had passed out from drinking, and he took horse tranquilizer on his own for fun. Yeah. So, this is, I don't know, maybe he did, and maybe that is something that, like, people do partying nowadays but I but I feel like someone with his his finances and his resources like if he really wanted to do party drugs like he could go out and find them no issue in LA that and like does he have a history of drug use I thought it was just the, the drinking there was like one source that said that him and Elisa would like party and do cocaine but that's again with Elisa but like before that there's no record of him ever doing that and I mean that could have been her saying it I also think that like so where I'm going next with this is that according to Elisa Sarah decided to give him more tranquilizer and this is on the 9th so maybe she's trying to make herself look better no we, he he took a lot and we just gave him more like that isn't pretty sure horse tranquilizer is not made for humans so why are you giving him that at all so that's the thing is that was on the 9th. On the 10th, he still went up, like he still got up and he still went to the horse show on the 10th. And that's when his friends saw him. And that's when he told his friends that he was feeling sick and he went back up to the room. Elisa is relaying these gruesome details in her confession. And she's laughing while she's saying this. And she says, oh God, it seemed like a good idea at the time. But oh God, it's so horrible to think of taking someone's life. She's such a dumbass. But she's laughing. She and I just don't understand. It's you're, you're like you're confessing to a murder. But not only that, like even if you hadn't killed him, you are still confessing to the fact that you gave a human being horse tranquilizer. Mm -hmm. Like that's not you don't do that. That's where it goes again to September 10th. He got up and went to the show. Went back to bed the next morning on September 11th. So I don't know. It sounds like they gave him more tranquilizer on the 10th after he went to sleep. So, the next morning on September 11th, 2001, when the world was pretty distracted by other unfortunate events, 
Larry was still alive, but he was extremely sedated, so they had to put him in a wheelchair and somehow get him into the truck. And this is Elisa, again, in her confession, relaying all this to detectives. So they're assuming that he's going to die at any moment, and so they drive, they're in Los Angeles driving to Yosemite. And they did this because this was a childhood favorite spot for Sarah. So according to Elisa, Sarah gets out of the truck and starts digging a hole. Elisa stops her because Larry is still alive and Elisa is like, we can't bury him when he's alive. <clears throat> so they drive back home to the Sacramento area. The next morning, September 12th, Larry was dead. They wrap Larry in a blanket and put him in a fridge in the garage. So, quick question. The tranquilizer, is it a powder or is it an injection? It's a liquid. Okay, so 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 they're like willingly saying that they gave him more tranquilizer like to kill him. Yes, okay. and they are um so they put it in like a little visine bottle like um eye drops mm -hmm. and like while he was sleeping like they just opened his mouth and like dropped drops in. So it. she's not even fighting the fact that, that that they killed him at this point. She's just fully confessing. She's confessing. She has like a really I think it was like a three-page confession or it might have been longer than that. I'm not sure. Okay. So they drive back to the Sacramento area. And the next morning on September 12th, Larry was dead. Oh, so uh, yeah, they wrapped him in a blanket and they put him in the fridge. And they debated about where to bury him for a really long time. But since they could not reach a conclusion, they just left him in the fridge. And he was in there for about three months. There was one point, according to Elisa, that Sarah went to the house and she noticed a fridge had opened. So she wrapped it with duct tape to keep it closed. And this is like a standing refrigerator. This isn't like a fridge that people have in their garage where it lifts, like it opens from the top. This is just like, like a one door refrigerator and they wrap duct tape around it. And it's a fridge, not a freezer, right? Not a freezer. Okay. No. And they continued to have house parties, dinner parties, people over all the time. Just no one noticed the duct tape fridge. I don't know. After a while, after about three months, they put Larry in the trunk and drove to Vegas. They really wanted to bury him in Vegas because he loved Vegas. And while they were doing that, they would stay at the Bellagio, which I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's like a really nice hotel. You said you've never been to Vegas. Um, but it's definitely like, if you're, if you're committing a crime, like I probably wouldn't stay there because there's gonna be cameras and staff everywhere yeah if so they if get, I committed a crime which first of all I wouldn't do but second of all like I'm not gonna go anywhere that has people I'm just gonna flee like goodbye yeah. go see at some seedy motels that I will most likely end up getting murdered at but yeah and at this point like they're still in her red convertible because this was before like this she's this was right at, like, she still had the red convertible. So they're, like, driving up to the Bellagio. They get to the hotel. Sarah's driving. And the bellhop is like, oh, can you pop your trunk so we can get the bags? And she's like, sure. So she pushes the little button, and the trunk pops. And Elisa gets out of the car and goes and, like, closes the trunk. What? Yeah, because <laughs> there's a body in there. And so they decide to err on the side of caution, and they stay somewhere else. And according to Elisa, she decides to go out on her own and bury the body in 
Las Vegas, but it's she's in Vegas, so like it's very very dry. Yeah, it's a desert. <laughs> yeah, so she's like digging and she's not getting anywhere because it's like the ground is solid. Like that's why there's not a lot of plants in Vegas. It's just cactus because it's like super dry. She can't bury him in Vegas, so then she takes him to the vineyard in uh, San Joaquin County and disposes of the body. She takes him and she tells the investigators that she takes him there because he loved wine. So did she bury him or just dump him? Buried him. Okay. Yeah, but not in a very in a very deep grave. So now they have Elisa and she's told him all this, so now they need to go talk to Sarah. So... March 19th, 2002, they bring Sarah back for questioning. During a tearful interview, she claims that she was afraid of Elisa and did everything Elisa told her to out of fear. So at this point, this is her third time that she's been interrogated by them. The first time, she's like, no, I have no idea where he is. Like, I keep asking, but I don't know. And then the second time, it's like, I can't believe he's dead. Who would do this? This time, she's like, yeah, Elisa made me do it. So they're, they've now turned on each other at this yeah. point. She said Elisa would sometimes talk about killing Larry, but she didn't think she would go through with it. She admitted to being there when it happened, but she had no part in feeding him the tranquilizer. She said it was Elisa's idea to go to Yosemite, and she actually forced Sarah to get out of the car. And then um, on the 12th, when Larry died, she wanted to call the police, but Elisa told her she couldn't, and she threatened her, saying she would be sorry if she called the cops. So they took this poor man from Yosemite to Vegas to Sacramento. All mm -hmm. just... I hate them. <laughs> Each time you're going out and doing this, you're just increasing your risk. Well, that and it's like you have so many chances to be like, oh, we shouldn't do this. Like when they originally were going to go bury him in Yosemite, you said that he was still alive. From that drive from Yosemite back to her house, she could have been like, you know what? Let's go dump him at a hospital at least. Just like put him in a hospital, like at least like at the front steps. Right. He was already in a wheelchair. So despite her dramatic and overwhelming performance in her interrogation, investigators are not convinced and they arrest Sarah for murder charges. Meanwhile, Elisa is set to have her hearing in Florida to be extradited back to California. Because she had a warrant in Florida, they needed to do this in order to move her. But on Easter Sunday, Elisa is found hanging in her jail cell. Shut up. I gotta go. <laughs> is your Uber yeah, here? Yeah, my Uber's here. I gotta go. <laughs> yeah, so she left a note to her attorney asking her attorney to please sue Hernando County Jail for allowing her to kill herself. <laughs> allowing her. They just let her do it. Yes, she killed herself and then wants her lawyer to sue the, the county because the county let her kill herself. And the hope here is, is that he would win some damages and then give the money to her children. As a final gift. Wow. A final gift for their mom killing herself is, oh, at least she'll get some money from me suing the, the jail. And her poor children at this point, they're, they're probably finally to take a breath and be like, okay, my mom's in jail. She's going to be rehabilitated. She's in a safe place. 
I'll still be able to see her, but she can't do any more damage. And then she goes and does this. Right, because you know her kids didn't want her to kill herself. They wanted her to, of course to get not. help. And then she does this. It's like, uh, it's heartbreaking. I feel so bad for her kids. I know, me too. It's really sad. But Sarah still had to face justice for her part in the crime. And this would be difficult Um with Elisa gone, she couldn't be cross-examined, so what that means is that Elisa's confession tape would not get played for the jury. Sarah's attorney, Kevin Climo, represented Unabomber Theodore Kaczynski and multiple murderer Dorothea Punte. Wow. Yeah, that's Sarah's attorney. Nice. And this guy is weird. Like... If you watch an interview with him, he describes Sarah, who at this time, I think is in her early 20s, because I think she had graduated from Saks J, and then she worked for them, and then this is like 2002, so it's a couple years later. He describes her as, and I quote, a little baby who you just want to grab a baby blanket and put it around her. She is such a helpless little thing. Ew. She's not a baby. No, she's an adult. That's such a creepy way to describe somebody. Don't call her a baby. Like, say she's, this poor, this poor woman was manipulated into this terrible situation and, I don't know, but a, a poor little helpless baby. No. And her defense was that she was an unwilling participant and she was just as surprised as everyone else when the murder occurred. Of course she was. And her defense attorney continue to say it seems like a classic instance of evil sort of wrapping around a sweet young little baby this guy needs to go straight to jail <laughs> so gross straight to jail <laughs> it's disgusting like she's not a freaking baby she's no in her early 20s like even like, just say, like, she's just a kid. Because, yeah, that's early 20s is still young, and I acknowledge that, and that's, and everything like that. But you're still, she's a, col like, at the very least, even if she hadn't graduated from college yet, she's still a college student. And also, she was, like, the president of her high school. Yeah, I mean, I'll accept him calling her a girl, but stop calling her a baby. Yeah, she's not a baby. No, I just a baby. If anything, if anyone's a baby here, it's, like, Elisa's kids who have been put through all right. this. Right. And they are still, like, old enough and smart enough to know what's going yeah. on. Whereas Larry's daughter, Tavia, claims everything she did was for her and her motive and for her gain. And I think if Sarah wasn't here, my dad would be, which I agree. Yeah. And then Ginger Miller, who was the third assistant, the one that went to the cops, mm -hmm. she was a key witness for the prosecution. So she basically testified everything that she had disclosed to the cops, saying... Sarah was forging Larry's signature, and she participated in a lot of illegal activities. Good. I'm glad that she still stuck around to do her due diligence. I mean, that that couldn't have been easy, too. And I, I feel, I mean, I feel really bad for her because, like, that's, she was just, like, thrown into such a crappy situation. Yeah. Sarah was convicted of voluntary manslaughter and accessory to murder by a superior court judge, uh, Bernard Gaber. Garber and sentenced to 11 years in prison. Just 11? Just 11 because 
voluntary manslaughter is not murder in the first degree. So if it was, if it were murder in the first degree, she would have had a lot longer of a sentence. But I don't know. To me, this sentence is bullshit because 11 years is nothing. No, you literally killed a man. Like, you weren't the only one involved, sure, but I mean, you had every opportunity to stop it. Yeah. Stupid. And this, to me, was so premeditated. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I, I, it's just very frustrating. And, of course, she tried to appeal. Of course. Like they all do. Um, during an appeal to reduce her sentencing, District Attorney Thomas Testa testified she's a convicted felon and she was con she was convicted of killing a man it's a violent offense voluntary manslaughter is defined as a violent offense and dutra could not be trusted on her own recognizance any promise she makes to appear is worthless because her word is worthless and then in 2007 the state's third district court of appeal overturned garber's sentence saying the judge overstepped his authority. Wow. Yeah. Which I am like, how does that even happen? Because, like, that was such a small sentence and so mild and... That was nothing. So please tell me... No. Tell me how long she served. So, hold on. The appeals court reversed it and gave Judge uh, Suhir's newly assigned... So they gave a new judge the case and they gave him the right to decide if... Dutra should serve the maximum term. The judge uh, told Dutra that she needs to come to terms with her dual personality. She was characterized in court at times being a loveling, artistic woman and at other times a calculating killer. The judge said, I suggest that you somehow reconcile these two parts of you, which we know exist, so that you can truly live the better side of your life for your future. So she ended up serving eight years of her 11-year term, and she was paroled in 2011. So she went, she was like how old when she got out? I think she was 31. Wow. So she has her whole life ahead of her. She has her whole life ahead of her. And I mean, that, that was in 2001, or 2011, so she was 31 in 2011, so she's in her 40s now. Yeah, but... But it's just... And and so I know I mentioned that we were going to kind of talk. So I wanted to leave some time here to talk about, like, theories, kind of. Because Thomas Testa, who was the prosecutor, he... When he originally took this case, he thought that Sarah was innocent. And he kind of thought that she was a victim. But he, as he looked deeper and deeper into the case, he completely turned. And he was like, no, Sarah's the mastermind. He theorized that they had like a like a more than friends relationship and Sarah did not like Larry like apparently that was very well known she didn't like Larry Larry didn't like her so this is some sort of weird love triangle she thought Larry was arrogant annoying talked too much so she had Elisa Elisa was her golden ticket and Larry was Elisa's golden ticket mm -hmm. so that's what Testa thought what do you think um, I mean, how old was she when she got hired with the law firm? 19 or 18? I think that she had graduated from Sac State. So I would say maybe 21. I mean, 
it was said that they liked to go out and have drinks together, but that doesn't mean that she had to be 21. I would say 19 to 21. Okay. I don't know. Like, I, I could see her being the mastermind, but with Alicia's, Alisa's history, I don't fully get behind that. But at the same time, Alisa's history was petty stuff, like stealing, you know, that sort of thing. And then now it's all of a sudden escalated to murder. I think it very much came down to Alisa was showing Sarah all these things that she could do for her. And the two of them probably just got into a conversation about it. And it just came around that they were like, well, to solve all of our problems, we just have to get rid of Larry. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think either one of them was necessarily the mastermind. However, I do feel like Sarah needed to serve more time. Because ultimately, she had every opportunity to stop the murder. To stop from poisoning this man. To stop burying him. Like... She could have stopped it at any point, mm-hmm. and she didn't. So she's not just a helpless, like, bystander, and, like, Elisa... A sweet little young baby. Yeah, Elisa bailed on her and was just like, deuces, I'm out. So that could have been her opportunity to be like, look, I've been abused by this woman for all of this time. She finally left, so now I can come out and say something. She didn't exactly. do Exactly. No, she had... And that's the thing. It's like, if you really wanted to do something like you... If if someone was trying to, like, make me an accessory or somehow get me something, get me involved in something like that, I would, like, I would go to the cops and I would be like, hold me here, like, put me in a cell until you arrest this person. Like, keep me safe until this right. person's arrested because this is what's going on. You have options. I have told my husband, if he ever, like, killed somebody and told me, I'm turning him in. <laughs> I love him. With my entire heart and like I don't want anything to happen but if he said that he committed um, a heinous crime like that I'd be like oh my goodness thank you so much for telling me and then I'd sneak away and just be like get him now I'm not coming back until he's gone like I'm not gonna be an accomplice to that no it's not worth it it's not worth your entire life or I guess in her case 11 years which is I uh, I just feel like that's so ridiculous. Not even that's, eleven. She she did eight. Right, eight years, eight years. Sorry, but she got so she got out when she was thirty one years old, which is, I mean, I don't. I'm not here to say what's appropriate and how a person can rehabilitate and what the time is. I think for everyone it's different, but how how can we be putting these people back on the streets? I don't think there is a way to rehabilitate somebody for a murder where it's a situation where it wasn't self-defense. Self-defense mm-hmm. is different, but if you're just, like, blatantly murdering somebody because you want money and you want to have fun, you should be locked up for the rest of your life. And Because if you if you have those thoughts, then that's, like, there's those are sick thoughts, and, like, you need help, and you, that's, we can't risk that. We can't risk having that in our society. There's already enough crap we deal with right i mean she was sent away for eight years i mean she just basically went to a really strict boarding school where she wasn't allowed to leave for eight years and then she got out and 31 years old is really young that's still a time for you there's enough time in your life to have a whole career build a whole family i don't know what she's doing now because uh, i know she moved back to vacaville and she moved in with her parents after she got released but other than that there's like literally ghost silence whatever you want to call it on her there's nothing yeah so. well hopefully she does rehabilitate and doesn't 
do anything like this again. But at the same time, like, that's not fair to Larry. It's not fair to his family. You know, it's just our, I have said it before, our justice system is, is screwed up. And mm -hmm. the fact that somebody, she wasn't 14 years old. She wasn't a kid. She was a grown woman. She was a young adult when this happened. And she needed to serve the time for it. And she didn't. She just got a slap on yeah. the wrist. I understand and I acknowledge that the jails are overcrowded and prisons are overcrowded and all that crap. Okay, well then get rid of all the people that were carrying marijuana. I don't care about that. Or Well, they need to restructure it. Like, we don't need to have people, violent offenders, in prison with people that are there for petty crimes. Because mm -hmm. ultimately the people that are there for the petty crimes are going to get hurt and they're going to get hardened and then they become hardened criminals when they get out they're not reformed they don't rehabilitate like they come out worse than they went in most of the time because they're exposed to these conditions and it's not good for them but like mm -hmm. they're in there with murderers or people that are gang members that are very violent people and that they shouldn't be in there with and i don't think that's fair i feel like if you have done something and you have the the ability to be rehabilitated you should be sent somewhere else mm -hmm. not these prisons mixed in with all of these other people yeah i agree but that's that's our justice system for you welcome to america mm -hmm. yeehaw <laughs> america america <laughs> so and i i mean i again it's just like this, this man struggled and he, he had his vices and I think that, you know, that's, that's a that's really common and that is something that can be rehabilitated. People can come out of the other side of that and live great lives. It's just a matter of who they surround themselves with and the kind of values that they instill upon themselves and exactly what they decide, what they decide to do and, you know. I... And he was trying. It's just unfortunately, you know, it is really easy to fall in with people, especially when, like I said, they, they bat those eyelashes at you and they're just like, oh, mm -hmm. I'm helpless victim. Help me and my daughter. But yeah, it's it's unfortunate. And he just, he fell into it with the wrong person. And what ultimately happened to you is probably like him and Cheryl had been together for seven years. So he was probably mm -hmm. getting bored and probably was looking for something else because it does happen, unfortunately. And... He just happened to meet Alicia, and we know what happened next, so. Yeah. Poor Larry. I feel bad for him and his kids. I do, too, and that's, I think that's the saddest part is, is that his kids really did try. They tried to reach out, and they tried to maintain a relationship, and, you know, they were, they also reported him missing, too, and they tried to contact Alicia and ask where he was, and she obviously, you know, wouldn't give them any answers and and not just his kids like her kids too like i know we don't know much about the son mm -hmm. but ultimately he gets to live the rest of his life knowing that that was his piece of shit mom and the daughter like i'm glad she's coming out now but i mean the trauma like yeah sure she may not have been exposed directly to any of like the violence because she was bounced around so much but still it's not stable no so I do feel, I feel really bad for all the people that get involved in the, a lot of these cases because it's just like, they didn't want any of that. They weren't, they didn't ask for it. No, and no one deserves that. I mean, if you're, I don't know, like, go make your own money. That's too difficult. 
that's something that everyone struggles with. Everyone is, everyone wants unlimited amounts of money. Of course they do, but that's not obtainable. And one of life's struggles is that you have to go out there and you have to work for yourself and you have to make money and you have to earn it and you have to just like continue. I don't know. Unfortunately, even back in the 90s and early 2000s, it was glamorized to be a stay-at-home person that had mm. everything covered for them. And now it's turned into people that are content creators and it's glamorized. Boss babes. Yeah, and it's glamorized to be like, oh, I work from home, I drive this nice car, I get all this money, but it's like, it's not feasible for most people unless you really work hard at it. But unfortunately, the lifestyles are glamorized so much that people do whatever they can to get those things. But that's just... Yeah, it's really sad. It's our society, and it's never going to change, unfortunately. No, if anything, it just keeps getting worse. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So. Well, that is the case of Larry McNabney. I am sorry for bumming you out today. <laughs> That's okay. I realized as soon as you said they were hiring another secretary, I was like, I have, I watched the Dateline episode on this. Or yeah. 2020, whichever one it was. Most likely 2020, but yeah, I remember hearing about it, so. Well, thank you for that. Thanks for bumming everybody out. Yeah, I feel like that's, that's what, what we're going to do every episode, you know. It's just the cross we bear. <laughs> hey, but we enjoy bringing it to everybody. Yeah. Do you have anything to finish off the episode with? No, I do not have anything. I don't even know what my next case is going to be because I haven't okay. been able to decide, but um, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get something. Perfect. Yeah. So do you want to close this out? Yep. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a week. We'll see you next time, and don't forget to go follow us on Instagram at SentencePod. And if you want to send us an email, you could do so uh, by sending us a Gmail to SentencePod at gmail.com. Um, we're still working on the Patreon, finalizing that. It's just with the holidays, we didn't want to put anything out there and then not be able to fulfill everything. Um, Kara's going to Hawaii, so <laughs> it's going to mm -hmm. slow us down a little bit, but we'll be all right. So hopefully by mid to late January, everything will be up and running the way we want it to be. So with that being said, we will see you guys in the next episode. Bye, guys. Bye.